ಭಗವತ್ತು ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತ ನಮೋ ತಸ ಭಗವತ್ತು ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತ ನಮೋ ತಸ ಭಗವತ್ತು ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತ So tonight, Gormando uh, asked me uh, to say a few words. Um, I've uh, been here for a little over a week and uh, I'll be leaving tomorrow. So as it is appropriate, I'll share a few words tonight. Uh, but first off, I'd just like to thank um, Lumpur and Ajahn Sawang, Ajahn Punyo, Ajahn Abhinando, and the, the whole community here for um, hosting me. Um, it's been uh, very delightful to come uh, and visit Harnam. Uh, and there's a... Uh, Well, most of the community here is new. There's a few old friends, including Ajahn Saritanyo, Ajahn Swang, Ajahn Punyo, uh, and, and even Lumpur Menindo was in Thailand um, when I first ordained um, about 20 years ago now. Um, during my novice year, uh, Lumpur Menindo was over in Thailand and was kind of substitute abbot at Wat Pananachat um, just after I had ordained as a, as a novice monk. And uh, it's my first visit to any of the English uh, monasteries. Um, and uh, it's really wonderful to come to, to visit Harnam up here in England, or North Umbria, as Ajahn Puna would call it. <laughs> North York. <laughs> uh, I, I remember years ago uh, reading a book by John Snelling, And it was around the time I was getting really kind of focused and serious about finding a place to kind of really get down to it and and train and practice in, in more depth. And didn't really wh know where to go um, to do that at the time. I was interested very much in, in Buddhism, but also yoga and other practices, uh, various Hindu kind of teachings and Um, but Buddhism had a, a strong appeal, and I remember they had this index in the back of the book, and I was flipping through it and looking for centers and whatnot, and I remember coming across um, Ajahn Sumedho's name and then seeing the addresses of these four monasteries in, in uh, England, with Ajahn so-and-so and Ajahn so-and-so, and, and I looked up Ajahn Sumedho's name and found out that he was from Seattle, Washington, which is where my mother was born, and I grew up a couple hours away from there. And uh, I thought it was strange, like an American monk trained in Thailand, living in England, and there's all this network of monasteries. And I thought thought about it for a couple seconds and went, no, I don't think I'll go to England to study Thai Buddhism. <laughs> uh, and at the time, there was no monasteries in America. So... Uh, uh, Within a year or so, I, I found myself in, in Thailand and, and uh, ordained and trained there. I spent several years there. 
later came to America. The first monastery that was established there, a Baigiri monastery. Um, and then just the last four years, kind of have come closer to home, actually, and, and living in Washington State, um, not so far from where Omphor uh, Samedo kind of is from. And um, in fact, his sister lives just down the road from us uh, in my hometown of Vancouver, Washington. And I've been living there for the last four years in what we call the Pacific Hermitage. It's a very a bit different uh, arrangement than this. It's uh, a small kind of branch of Vaiguri of Monastery where just three bhikkhus are living. Um, and we started this about four years ago. Uh, and since Vaiguri is kind of a big flourishing monastery and uh, a little bigger than Harnam, but you know, uh, organized in much the same way. There's, there's monks, there's novices, there's anagarikas, lay people come and stay as guests. There's teachings, uh, sort of going on throughout the week, and all kinds of programs and opportunities for people to come and participate in many different ways. Uh, our idea for this hermitage that uh, I set up was to try to keep it small and simple as a kind of place where the monks from the bigger monastery could get away and live in a very simple way. Uh, so we don't have novices or even Navaka monks so much or Anagarikas. There's no guest facilities. Uh, and probably the most striking or unique feature of the place is with just three monks living there, there's no food in the place, there's no steward, there's no money, there's no car. So we're alms mendicants um, in the most traditional sense of um, being a Buddhist alms mendicant. Um, we're completely reliant every day, to going out into the community and, and walking around and gathering our food for the day uh, each and every morning. So, and that's a, a, a big part of our practice uh, at, the, at the specific hermitage. So we, we live near a, a small town there's a couple thousand people, um, and each morning after practicing together, the monks walk through um, the town and collect their alms food, and they come back and sit down and eat their meal. Uh, our alms round takes two to three hours most mornings, um, and there's usually some in engagement with people in the community um, uh, through that sort of interaction. And it can be as simple as people sort of lying or waving or smiling um, or people sort of stopping you and asking you a question or uh, sharing their appreciation. And many of our friends that live in uh, the local town have been reading and studying Dhamma now. So oftentimes they have a little question, you know, Bhante, uh, I'm reading Ajmanindo's book on page so-and-so. It says this, what does he mean? Um, and rather than having come to the monastery, we, if we can answer it sort of in a succinct way, then it kind of gives some sort of input. Uh, it's been a really uh, exciting and kind of interesting experiment, sort of living in the West uh, like that, in a more as a more kind of traditional alms mendicant. Um, generally, we we get fed pretty well, but uh, it's a bit hit or miss sometimes, feast and famine. Um, 
and it's really it's really an amazing part of the practice as a Buddhist renunciant, kind of just living with that day to day sort of uncertainty. Um, the weather's a bit like it is here. Um, it's often raining, it's often snowing, in the winter time it's cold. Sometimes it's sunny. Uh, every day just to kind of go out there and and walk uh, four or five miles through the town, collecting your food is is really special and kind of humbling practice for us. But it's nice to uh, come and spend some time in uh, a monastery such as Harnam. Most of my life as a monk, I've, I've lived in these bigger sort of training monasteries and, uh, you know, the sort of the rhythm of a monastery like this with the morning and evening sort of meditation and sort of chantings and there's training going on. Uh, right now there's uh, a novice who's getting ready for a bhikkhu ordination. Ajahn Suwang's teaching him to sew his robes. Uh, there's two Anagarikas here who are training, driving, cooking, and managing various things. Uh, I got to witness a, a third ordination, Anagarika Mark, who's not with us tonight. He, he's already broken his collarbone or <laughs> something within the first week of his monastic life. Um, and uh, people coming, such as yourself, to participate and draw near to the monks and, and the teachings. One of the practices that we do, uh, that we started sort of the year after we established the hermitage, which is, again is a kind of traditional practice in this tradition, is to spend some time sort of outside of the monastery, um, kind of wandering or living more simply in the wilderness. And uh, the second, the first year we were so busy kind of just settling down and, and getting things sort of set up, we didn't really have much time to do that. But the, the second year um, we managed to kind of get out. Um, and I think it's important to try to keep some of these traditions alive in a way that's sort of uh, meaningful and uh, being just out there in the wilderness, uh, especially sort of uh, walking place to place, not having a fixed resting place or something uh, can also be really profound practice. And the way we took this up um, was to start hiking a, a section of, of the Pacific Crest Trail. In America, there's this trail network that goes from Mexico all the way up to Canada. It's about 2,600 miles long. Uh, and it goes through the Sierra Nevadas and the Cascades. And um, we don't have time to do 2,600 miles of hiking in a year. But we took a, a, a few weeks out to go and do this, uh, both last year and the year before. And just after we had finished it, uh, somebody gave me this book that was making the rounds, kind of a, a popular uh, story by a, a local author. Uh, her name's funny enough, Cheryl Strayed. Um, and she's, she had hiked this same sort of trail uh, 
quite a number of years before and had just written a sort of popular book about it. And it's one of these stories about somebody who's stuck in their life, who's in a place of great difficulty and uh, uh, one of these classic tales of transformation. And oftentimes we find ourselves um, stuck, unable to go forward, um, suffering unduly. Uh, and I think it's humans, these tales of people who have kind of overcome. It's almost like the journal, journey of the hero or something. You know, you take a break from normal life. You go out, you do something big or different. You go somewhere, you meet some sort of challenges, and somehow through uh, that experience you find uh, new strength or some sort of insight into your personal nature or some sort of way forward. And this this book is kind of interesting. She's kind of young at the time and not really an experienced backpacker. She she's just been recently divorced and then in some horrible relationship and addicted to to drugs and uh, she really can't sort of seem to sort of stabilize herself in her life. Uh, I think her mother had just died too. And um, she had been in a outdoors shop and had seen this book about this 2,600-mile trail. And somehow it, it just kind of grabbed her. She was just checking out. She sees this book, and she buys it. And she's reading it, and uh, she's thinking, I, I must do this. Somehow she felt kind of drawn to, to doing this. And uh, it's very well sort of written book. But uh, this scene uh, kind of early in the book sort of came to me where she's, she's, you know, her life's a mess and she hasn't really prepared well for this trip. She's, she's bought this backpack and she's bought all this gear and the guys in the store, oh, you need this, you need this camping stove and water purifier and, you know, make sure to take this and make sure to take that. And she kind of buys all this stuff and she's been doing her best to plan for this enormous journey, um, but hasn't really kind of pulled it all together. Um, hops on the bus, and it goes down to Mexico, and um, gets there sort of tired, gets a hotel room, and sort of like the night before she's due to head off on this long journey, she's opening the blister packs and taking things out of the boxes and reading the instructions, and and she starts packing this backpack and and she gets this backpack sort of uh, all sort of together and ready with the sleeping bag on the top and the tent and the water bottles and the camp stove and the gas and everything and she goes to pick this thing up and she can't lift it she falls on the ground uh, she's got this enormous backpack stuffed with all this gear um, and she wrestles around with it for a little while longer and and uh, feels absolutely dispirited. <laughs> she hasn't even kind of begun the journey and she's got a, a backpack that she can't like even move. Um, but uh, she's really determined. She's fearless, you could say, uh, not to go, not to give up and not to go backwards. You know, she's... She's really 
needs to move forward in her life. And this kind of plan of, of hiking is, is her, her only kind of strategy, you could say. So she nicknames this backpack monster. Um, so she's got this big, huge blue backpack. And uh, from the description, she doesn't sound like a very big woman. So she puts this monstrous thing on. And you start out in Campo, right on the Mexican border, which is desert. And she's hiking, and of course she's getting blisters and and sweating, and you know, sort of you know, trying to learn the ropes of of through hiking, walking this walking this trail. Um, and the story is very it, it's very interesting kind of story. She she uh, she in time, of course, kind of bit by bit sort of learns. Uh, and I was thinking about thinking about this, seeing these kind of young men who are kind of going forth, training as Bacows, novices, and having a few of my friends here that were with me in the kind of early days when I rolled up into the monastery with my monster. Um, and thinking of, like, in a sense, what a wonderful sort of metaphor it is uh, for spiritual practice. Um, you know, especially for Westerners. And so often we we come to uh, practice out of that sort of same place. We're looking for um, a change in our life. Uh, the normal ways are not working. Um, we need a break. Uh, we need a new vision. Uh, and the way forward isn't so clear. Um, we're going on inspiration in a sense. And, you know, my own kind of backpack, I had yoga and Vedanta and Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism and, and Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. And, you know, you throw all this kind of stuff in the bag. Or even if you're focused on Theravadan Buddhism, the teachings are so rich. You know, there's, especially Theravadan Buddhism, you have all these endless sort of lists, you know, sort of the three characteristics, the four noble truths, the four right efforts, the five hindrances, the five jhana factors, the eight jhanas, the 37 bodhiapakyadamas. Um, and when you first um, meet this, at times it can be very exciting. And you're stuffing it all in your bag. Uh, there's so much to learn. There's so much to do. And in the context of a monastery also, there's so much to uh, to to train in and learn and develop. There's the, the korwat, there's the routines of the monastery, there's all the skills of monastic life, the chanting, the rituals, the protocols. Um, and um, it can be exciting, but, uh, you know, the shadow side of that, you can say, is uh, it, it, it can be monstrous or overwhelming at times. Um, so often, um, you know, when in the early phases of practice, you look at this and, and you feel, how does this all even fit together? <laughs> uh, or you know, even looking at various meditation practices, you know, there's you know, thirty-two parts of the body. There's metta bhavana. There's the brahma viharas. There's anapanasati. Um, and sometimes it can feel a bit kind of overwhelming, like, you know, sort of, 
do we have to learn it all? Do we have to train in it all? How does it all uh, relate? And, you know, back to this story of our, our backpacker. Um, you know, after a while, she's sort of hiking down the, the trail and she meets um, some fellow hikers um, more experienced than her. And they take a look at her backpack and they look at her and, wow, <laughs> you're carrying that monster around. Uh, and out of kindness and compassion, they say, let, let, let's take a look at this here. And they sort through it and, you know, sort of teach her how to pack it and, and also sort of help her sort of like, well, you don't really need this, do you? You don't really need that. And um, help her sort of uh, refine her, her kit and her gear. Uh, learn some of the things that she could let go of, some of the things that she might not really need um, for the whole journey. Um, and, you know, in in our practice, the, the same thing is true. It's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's not necessary that we need all this stuff, but starting off from that sort of beginner's place or starting off from that place of ignorance or something, it's not a wrong-headed strategy. Um, you have to collect and uh, go forward and give it a go um, just to get started. But in time, you sort of learn, um, you know, what things work, what things uh, are truly sort of useful, and and what things you you can kind of set aside. Um, kind of in the in the backpacking world, there's kind of a maxim, sort of like, uh, the more you know, the less you need. Um, and so, as you get uh, more and more experienced. You don't really need that much kind of gear. You don't really need that much kind of kit. They have these people out there that were ultralight backpackers, and they go out with very minimal gear um, because they 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 know sort of really what they need for them themselves. Uh, they know that the conditions are going to be in. Uh, they know what they need to kind of stay safe, to stay warm. Uh, And with Dhamma practice, uh, you know, in, in time, you know, when we study and really put the, the, the practice in, into effect in our lives, um, we see that, you know, some, a unique kind of facet of the Dhamma is, you know, one, that all these various kind of teachings and trainings have um, so many sort of like overlapping kind of qualities. One of the first teachers I studied with in Thai, Thailand was uh, a very well-known monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And one of the one of my favorite teachings from him was a teaching on the ten baramis. And um, the ten baramis is a really kind of disparate kind of set of dhammas. Um, but when he would teach about it, he sort of said, you know, really to perfect any one barami, you perfect all ten which really encapsulates this kind of idea um, of how the Dhamma has this kind of quality of, of, of being 
holistic, um, or almost like a fractal or something. You know, so to be perfectly, to be perfectly generous or something, you know, you, it encompasses patience, it encompasses morality, it encompasses kindness, uh, it encompasses all these kind of different values that are there in that. And so many of the, the teachings of Dhamma are like that. So it's not like you need uh, five pairs of socks and a, and a poncho and a raincoat and and a tent and a fly sheet. Uh, you can learn how to sort of simplify things, and in practice, uh, it really it it always kind of comes down to. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to sort of right effort and and right view. Thing, the thing I constantly try to sort of keep in mind and reflect on when I study Dhamma or look at sort of any sort of teachings of Dhamma or even in my day-to-day practice as I'm watching over my mind, is I try to always bring things back um, to some position of, of right view, seeing things through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, examining sort of um, the mind and the interactions I'm having with myself or with other people uh, in the light of dukkha in particular, in the light of you know, sort of looking for suffering or you might even say feeling um, for some sort of uh, the texture of experience. Uh, you know, am I, am I suffering? Is there discontent in the mind? The way I'm interacting with myself, or this present moment, or this person, or this situation—is uh, it free? Is it light? Or is there—is there some sort of lack of freedom there, or is some uh, burden on the heart, some narrowness, some constriction, um, some discontent? Really, that's the that's the core and the essence of the Buddhist teaching. It always comes back to it and comes down to it. It's wide and it's great in its breadth, um, but sort of uh, every Dhamma ultimately is pointing to uh, and supporting um, that ultimate question and that sensitivity. You could even say um, to really learning to sort of awaken to that um, experience which each and every one of us uh, come to uh, a thousand times a day. We rarely have the mindfulness, and we rarely have that framework sort of in front of us. Uh, and the training, the teaching, the path, the monastic form even, uh, the structure of our life as monastic, is, is there really to support that. Because it's so easy to kind of get lost. Um, it's a simple thing. But it's it's rare. It's it's rare that human beings kind of view their experience like that. Um, generally, our attention sort of is is sort of on what can I get out of this, or do I like it, or do I not like it, or is it fair, or uh, some state of kind of confusion or delusion. Um, and it's really funny, sort of living and practicing as a monk. And living in monasteries, just looking at my own mind and examining my own mind, it's like if I sort of 
look back over uh, any sort of day and sort of like and bring up this sort of reflection sort of like how present was I in my experience to really uh, notice and feel in a very clear and direct way dukkha arising in the mind uh, or dukkha ceasing or seeing the, the kind of the, the roots of dukkha sort of manifesting some sort of greed, some sort of craving, some sort of constriction around the various interactions in my life. And, and you know, over time, I would say it's more and more, but, but it, it, it's, it's often disheartening. It's like so, so, it's, the mind is so readily kind of pulled into sort of worldly sort of frameworks. Uh, gain and fame and loss, pain, pleasure. Past and future, and so often we're just trying to kind of get through, and our mind keeps like sort of projecting sort of forward um, to whatever it is that we have. Um, faith will bring us some sense of relief or pleasure or happiness, um, and we're really not in that place where we're fully feeling our experience and and attuned to sort of. Um, any dukkha that might have arisen or any dukkha that might kind of cease. And then this other sort of most kind of critical aspect of practice is really uh, right effort, which is then the strategy for how we sort of uh, meet our experience. And there's so many uh, responsibilities and things, things to do, trainings to undertake, meditations that we can kind of engage in, dhammas to contemplate even. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, what is the direct sort of experience of uh, walking this path? And uh, one way that I find useful and meaningful is, is always to kind of contemplate from this kind of framework of, of, of right effort. Um, not thinking I need to be somewhere else or thinking that I need to be uh, doing this or doing that, but really like responding to sort of the, the, the conditions that are there in front of me. Um, so if, if some, if, if my mindfulness can sort of discern some uh, negative, unwholesome, unskillful sort of state that's arisen, then really mustering the kind of the effort and the energy the discernment to sort of respond to that, not just to distract myself or, or, or fuzz out or, or kind of displace it or project forward into the future, to really respond to it. Find yourself getting angry or worked up over something. You find yourself getting anxious about something. Uh, you find the mind drifting off into dullness or just kind of spacing out. You know, to catch that and then to be willing to uh, engage with that and, and try to bring those uh, unskillful sort of states of mind to sort of resolution. Um, that alone is diminishing the experience of dukkha, but also it's building this support um, to keep that sort of framework uh, of contemplating sort of dukkha sort of alive and and, and clear and accessible uh, in your in your daily life. 
if there's some skillful states that it's arisen, there's a sort of a feeling of generosity, feeling of helpfulness, a feeling of goodwill, a feeling of silence and peace in the mind that arises. Um, you're not just kind of noting that. There's the recognition, the framework again, and the recognition, ah, this is a skillful, wholesome state. How do I, how do I support that? How do I move underneath that? How do I incline the mind um, to respond to that in a way um, that allows that to sort of uh, stabilize, mature, strengthen, stay a little longer, um, to grow into maybe something even more skillful or more kind of beautiful. And then if there's any kind of just openness in the mind, maybe you're not noticing any strong uh, unskillful or or, or skillful sort of states, Um, doing what you know through your experience and through your training and through your study of Buddha Dhamma, um, doing what you know um, helps support the future arising of skillful states and a diminishment of unskillful states. So that there will be any host of all these kind of practices of generosity and morality, uh, meditation, uh, various forms of of service, giving, study, contemplation, listening to Dhamma, or just being still, being quiet. And in the end, for for a meditator, um, you know this 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 coming back to this idea of the the more you, the more you know, the less you need, or something. <laughs> you know, ultimately, this this teaching is characterized by uh, the kind of the wisdom and the discernment that knows um, you could say personally or directly for yourself um, this noble truth of suffering. It's not something abstruse. We we all have uh, various forms of unsatisfactoriness sort of threaded through our lives. Um, And when we we do the work and we kind of walk the path and uh, we take the time to get sincerely interested and engaged and spending some time just tuning into that and feeling that, getting to know it, uh, getting to know uh, how it arises, getting to know how we can relieve it, how we can let it cease, how we can build supportive conditions to, over time, minimize the experience of suffering um, and ultimately free ourselves from it completely. Um, You don't need a lot. Um, That sort of overlapping holistic nature of the Dhamma really starts to kind of come into play, sort of like as you practice over the years. You really you really get a sense for like how mindfulness and metta or how dana and sila are <laughs> really sort of not that far apart. You know, just, or, you know, dana and 
and goodwill are so kind of closely connected. You know, it's like when you move away from that sort of narrowness of me and mine and obsessing about myself and you're thinking of others, it's like, um, it's just natural for this kind of sense of, of goodwill and lightness to kind of rise in the mind. When you arouse mindfulness or you just recollect or think of various kind of dhammas, it has this stuff stilling and stabilizing kind of effect on the mind which is part of samadhi. Um, and this is just, just a couple examples. Um, but it's like the more we know, the more we kind of uh, practice, the uh, less the practice seems like this big kind of monstrous thing. <laughs> um, less it seems like this kind of overwhelming thing um, that we'll never get to the end to, we'll never sort of understand. Um, and more, more it just seems very doable in it. It's also very direct and very immediate. It's just something that's right in front of you. There's always something right in front of us that we can do, regardless of the situation, regardless of how um, maybe confusing or painful some particular experience might be. Uh, there's, there's always some sort of opportunity uh, to meet it with skillfulness. There's always some opportunity to recognize um, suffering embedded in it and to move towards relieving ourselves from that. There's a few thoughts on Dhamma practice. Um, share them for your reflection tonight. Thank the community again for hosting me. It's been really lovely. and I hope to come back uh, sometime in the future. Ah. Uh.